Symbols. We're all familiar with them. There are shortcuts to vital information. That's why, to familiarize you with the movie rating symbols, which will be used by this theater, we present the following guide for parents and young people. It is designed to inform parents about the suitability of movie content for viewing by their children. G, all ages admitted, general audiences. GP, all ages admitted, parental guidance suggested. R, restricted, under 17 requires accompanying parent or adult guardian. X, 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 X. The Video Nasties, A through Z, with Death by... Island of Death and Last House on the left. You are listening to the Video Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. I am Harry Scott Sullivan, and he's here, he's back, banned in 194 countries. It's I, Alexander Nash. Just keep repeating, it's only I, Alexander It's only I. Just keep just repeating. Keep, just keep repeating. It's only. It's only. It's I guess we need to start this one again. This is maybe the third video nasty that there should be some sort of discretion advised for the content that we are going to be discussing. Both of these movies are particularly nasty, fitting that they're video nasties. A lot of things that are trigger warnings. You're going to have sexual assault, death, bestiality, a lot. Bunch of stuff. Fun for everyone. If I don't know. Take that back. It's fun for the whole family. Play it for the oh, kids. Oh, yes. Let the children hear it. The, the whole family about? loves to like, discuss sexualized violence. One of the films we're talking about has goat fucking in it, so it's definitely child appropriate. Um, the, the sensitive... the school Water issues. sports? Water, well, a lot of people are into that. Our, our 45th president of the United States apparently was into water sports, and I'm not judging. I don't want to kink, sh- kink shame. I do want to speak English correctly. But yes, this is the Video Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD. It's been a very, very, very long time. The last episode, I think we began with the Listening Discretion Act, and then we proceeded to do, uh, up to this point, I think that was our most vile and and brutal double feature that we had discussed. We had I Spit on Your Grave, a.k.a. Day of the Woman, starring Camille Keaton, and then we had... House on the Edge of the Park, Giovanni Lombardo Radice, David Hass, directed by Ruggiero Diodato. Both of those movies are dark, unredeeming, bleak, 
nihilistic. We can throw in a bunch of different verbs and adjectives to describe them. These movies are, are, I wouldn't say equals. I would say both of them are far, far more devastating, but they both have a meaning. They've earned their spot on the video nasties list. A lot of the things on there are patently ridiculous. Um, some of them were on there for title alone. All four of the movies that we've discussed lately have been on there for, I mean, I don't want to say good reasons, but reasons you at least understand why someone might want to ban it. It's not like something goofy or something that you just didn't understand what it was about. These are like fairly hardcore as far as subject matter and a lot of the issues that they get into as kind of uh, bumbling as they do discuss those issues. They're like, um, I wouldn't necessarily call them political, but I mean, they're just life issues that several different people have to deal with and they don't treat them lightly, but at times they do treat them lightly and they do treat them as plot points and not so much as, you know, the horrible crimes that they actually are. Um, it's, they're all kind of there for like entertainment purposes, which uh, is kind of phased out over the past, I'd say 20 years or so. If anything can be said about this episode's double feature, it's both movies have excellent soundtracks that intertwine with one another and will be a talking point later in the show between Alexander Nash and myself. But Island of Death has the friendliest, happiest soundtrack for a movie where people get peed on and a goat gets fucked. It also gets killed. There's crucifixions. There is a bulldozer murder. There's some sickle murders. There's a lot. There's uh, there's a lot. Well, like, what's... Interesting, I mean, just jumping right into the movie is Nico Mastrakis, Greek film director. His first two films, Island of Death and Death Has Blue Eyes, both have like really great 70s soundtracks. Like just watch the trailer for Death Has Blue Eyes and listen to some of the music in that one. It's great. It's got such a great groovy giallo name to it. It really sounds like it's going to be this explosive, uh, you know, kind of gritty film. And it is such a boring, I don't want to say nudie cutie, but there is not a lot. Well, going it's got on in that psychics movie. and um, weird shit in it. And it's kind of a giallo inspired type film. Well, the director's a really interesting guy, and then you you get to this movie, and I don't you know I, I don't know how to say it. You 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 don't tend to know a lot about people until you find something really either exceptional or really offensive. And sometimes, even though they've done bigger pictures, which Nico Mestrakis has done, you don't learn about them. You don't hear about them. And he ended up doing this movie, Island of Death, and beforehand had been, uh, what, a general television director? He'd done dramas, he'd done all sorts of... He did a lot with radio uh, uh, in uh, Greece. Game shows, um, black and white Greek TV. He he was a mainstay in television and was uh, more than a producer, a director, writer, had a great deal of experience and was influenced. I, I, I don't know if this is the first movie. I think this is an interesting talking point, though. This definitely is, is, if not the first, one of the very first films that was inspired directly by Toby Hooper, that Nico and a friend went and saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at an open-air Greek theater, and they, they hated it. They were shocked by it. They were disturbed by it. But what they took away was the fact that for $100,000, these guys have walked away with a couple millions of, well, the studio the company behind it walked away with a couple millions of dollars because toby hooper got paid in like i don't know 
a three half smoked joints, a cigar, and some Dr. Pepper. And then the mob stole all the money. Yeah, it, Toby Hooper did not have a good time ever, it, it seems. But they roughly understood, we can make some money. You know what we should do? Let's make something more offensive, more shocking, which opens up a, a, a neat little dissection of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because a, a recent Texas film came out, and it's either destroyed people or made them very, very enamored with the series. And you go back to that very first movie, and it, it seems so tame. It doesn't seem, by the standards of the new picture, shocking whatsoever. And you watch something like Island of Death and, and realize these people were influenced by Toby Hooper. They wanted to take it one more step. And I guess in Greece, one more step is a, a bounding leap for the rest of the world. <laughs> like seven steps? They just went fucking bananas, man. Well, before I even knew anything about this film and just watched it because I knew it was a video nasty. What I came away with is that it was made to be provocative, not knowing anything about the director, what his feelings were on it at all. And seeing subsequent interviews that that's generally like what he was doing. And you can kind of feel it with a vibe because it just keeps trying to up its ante and just be kind of as repugnant as possible. But he counterpoints all of this repulsion throughout the film with beautiful music and just like breathtaking scenery. So what you end up with, this film is very much like a 1970s travelogue story that is counterpointed by intense scenes of sexuality and violence and just anything that you could throw in a movie that people could object to because I mean, where it goes, because the big punchline of the film is this couple you've been seeing that you think is like some kind of married couple the entire time who are enacting all these violence on their vacation or actually been brother and sister this entire time. And they've been having sex and all this other, you know, like all this kind of stuff. So that's the, like the ultimate punchline is like, oh, and by the way, if you didn't think all this shit was bad enough, there's also incest. The end. Which is great because it really makes some of the things that you are witness to as the viewer while, while you're experiencing all of the trauma a lot more effective and and this is certainly going to be a weird statement for me but I really like this movie and I have to pretense that with what I'm going to say following it's not particularly good it's not uh, fun to watch it's very unpleasant it's very hurtful it, it's I would say a traumatic experience it's a really fucked up movie to watch there's a lot to take in there's a lot of beyond misanthropic behavior it's just absolutely negative but like Nash was bringing up for one to shoot. It's beautiful. Yeah, you shoot the movie in just one of the most jarringly beautiful locations. That sets the tone off. The soundtrack is carrying it, but what truly I find impressive is, just like Nash and I'm sure many people listening to this, I hunted this movie down as a teenager and saw the worst version possible of it simply because it was a video nasty. And the very first time I saw it, you know, I, I don't want to say it shocked me in the sense of I put my hand over my mouth and I'm appalled, but there is some shocking, jarring, and awing sequences of this movie, and as you're going through it, you begin to get desensitized almost. Okay, you know, they're killing people, it's terrible, this is a rape movie, this is awful, and somehow Nico manages to continuously find punches to pull that keep you watching, keep you on the movie, and some 20 years later I sit down and I watch the movie, I'm just as shocked as the first time I saw it. So I have to give appreciation, I have to actually say I like this movie because it's able to, no matter what, 
draw some form of emotion from me. And we live in this era where watching a movie is impossible. You sit on your fucking phone, you're on Twitter, you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, you're playing a game, you're doing something. You're not fucking watching the movie. I find my phone in my lap watching this and... It's it's hard because it's you're watching it mainly because of these atrocities and just you're watching it for how brutal and how it, it continuously one ups itself. So it's not like a positive experience in art, but I really have to give it the credit because I am feeling something. And despite it, it sounds the way I'm describing it makes it seem like it's a lot of nonsensical violence and violence for the sake of violence. There is a story that you're following. I mean, this couple comes to this Greek island and. The, the main character, Christopher, is a, a religious zealo. He's a fanatic. He, he finds all these people to be sinners, meanwhile doing the most sinful, horrible things completely possible to right the wrongs. And you follow this kind of adventure, uh, an adventure in terror and grotesque and disgust. He fucks a goat. And that's like... The first 15 minutes of the movie, maybe even like 12, the goat fucking scene is where a lot of like really crazy shit has happened in the film, too. It's one of the first like, oh, geez, this is going there. Starting with the goat fucking. okay, And then decapitates the goat. And at least I can tell the audience because we've got some people that do get upset when animals are hurt. They tranquilized it. They just gave him a quaalude. The goat fell asleep for a few hours and woke up. Um, They did not fuck the goat. They did not kill the goat. I don't know which one you have to say first. You have to tell them they didn't fuck it or they didn't kill it. Both are upsetting. Another powerful murder in the movie is basically crucifying this man to stone, like a stone floor and then pouring like a lie based paint a lime based paint down his throat and like choking him to death on it like that's what's even worse about that segment is he's the the character that's being killed is restoring like a 300 year old church so he's crucified on the steps of an ancient greek church on this island so the director himself is doing a bit of sacrilege i guess we could say but the the images irregardless are really really shocking Everything in this movie is presented to you really shocking, but something is just I don't I don't even know a good word for it. I mean, disgusting is is what I'll go with. But just the act of bestiality, the whole goat fucking scene, despite how disgusting it is, it it does have a reason, though. It's not like we were subjected to watching this guy do it for the shits and giggles of the director trying to make money. I mean, and that's his main gain here. Uh, Only reason the guy made this movie was to make money, but it does build the character. We're supposed to see that he is obsessed with religion and getting uh, a Christ-like attitude by subjecting all these other people to horrible acts while the meanwhile doing these terrible things. So we know from the beginning, if he's fucking this goat, we're only going to get... You know, more it's it's like a meter, I guess. By seeing something like this and being presented to the audience, it's like the barfometer, a test. Can you make it past this? Can you be subjected to this all the same time while following the story? And I I, I don't I don't want to make it seem like this is some really great artistic fucking piece. Like this is some Fellini movie you got to sit down and watch because it doesn't matter if you're a completist and you want to watch all the video nasties or you need to see every horror movie ever made. Sure, go ahead and do it, but. It has something to offer more than the violence, but I truly question by the end of the viewing experience if what it had to offer was fucking worth it. And I, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I mean, like, obviously we're talking about Last House on the Left later on in this episode. I think what draws a big difference in these two movies is there's a lot of comparisons. They unfortunately do make a pretty great double feature if you really want to go down this road. But at the end of the day, Last House on the Left offers something almost more poetic, despite it being 
I, I feel far more brutal, far darker, much more negative than this experience because by the when this movie ends, there is a, a an end to one of the characters. We see what happens, but it's not really positive. I mean, it's not like anything like even Day of the Woman. Uh, I spit on your grave. There's nothing positive about any of it at the end. But I guess it's a different light. It tends to um, end somewhat nihilistically, and I would say probably it's the one thing you could say about it that. It, that it maybe had some sort of point or reference in it, it would be kind of a examination of oppressive re, like religious iconography on in life and, and you know things like that just how religion can really kind of censor a lot of things in in life and kind of maybe turn people into boundary breaking weirdos but i mean and that's and that's like probably more incidental than anything but it as an overall point i mean just hearing it from the director himself it's like there really isn't one other than here's your next scene of like kind of being brutalized uh the viewer themselves being brutalized as much as the people within the film of just like can you take it can you take it and one announcementship and nico has made like a career he uh, made a lot more movies in the 80s it is it 90s. is wild his fucking career to me but his, is most wild. of them work on an exploitation level and that's probably the thing that's so interesting about his career i mean he did death has blue eyes and then he did island of death directly after that so he makes island of death and maybe not maybe this is certainly where i get my respect from this movie on is they saw the texas chainsaw massacre there's not a lot of on-screen violence. Even the meat hook sequence in that film isn't particularly bloody or devastating, and they wanted to one-up that. So this guy makes one of the most batshit, explicit, violent, terrible movies of all time. And I, I, I he decapitates the Toxic Avengers mom with a bulldozer. There's a bulldozer decapitation. There's there's this like a five-minute scene where he just torches somebody's face with a can of fucking aerosol. It goes like I, I don't know why where there were there were no brakes to be pumped at all. Like they saw Texas. How did they get so far from it? <laughs> they got miles from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, he, I mean, he could have just had like a little bit of extras than something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre seeing how is that doesn't have much of violence in it at all but it's just like both barrels and just went for any possible objectionable thing he could throw in like a scene of like water sports in a film um the the incest angle just all these different sort of taboos that he was just running with and just like you could have stopped at any point man a lot of reality he even wrote into the entire thing that he goes out to this island and he finds that there's a very big gay community there's a very big gay nightlife scene and a lot of discos and bars that are, are specifically themed for gay men so he writes a whole part of that end of the movie and it's some of the most disturbing stuff but I, I was mentioning earlier the soundtrack there's a lot of cues and the lo there's a lot of interesting things compiled onto all of this that end up allowing you to have, uh, I guess, kind of a fairly nice impression of it because most of the soundtrack, it sounds really pleasant. It sounds kind of like, uh, you know, Manson family fucking jams, like folkish kind of music. It's 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 not. It's like Joan Baez ish. It's it's just happy guitar. I mean, a lot jams. of it you could compare to um, some of the kind of Oliver Onion stuff of uh, like seventies and eighties Italian cinema. A lot of the uh, Riz Ortolini uh, music. It's it's all very similar to that. 
Well, you start listening to the lyrics with inside of it, and it, it becomes very jarring because the lyrics are very alarming. Um, they're, they're sometimes very hateful, but they're masked inside of these really pretty songs. And it hits you that the whole film's soundtrack that is driving you is coming from our lead character, Christopher's thoughts. So our whole experience is almost like a second camera sort of thing that you're he has a camera throughout the entire movie and he's taking pictures of it but he is a camera we're watching it and hearing all these things throughout the film there's a scene where the character we presume to be his his wife or whatever is having sex with another woman and the but I was I was watching a Stephen Thrower segment where he was talking about this and of course it's Stephen Thrower that always shines the light brilliant brilliant writer brilliant person in general I love Stephen Thrower and he brought it forward listen to what what the music is in the scene and it's somebody singing over and over again is this love this can't be love this can't be love but our character Christopher is is an insane religious zealot he's obsessed with Catholicism I guess and He's watching and photographing his sister having sex with another woman while singing, Is This Love? Is This Love? So we are really experiencing this entire movie, like, through the psychosis of this batshit son of a bitch, Christopher. And despite it being so vulgar and just, it's a terrible experience. I really would never recommend anybody for leisure watching this movie. It's not fun. It's not lighthearted. It's really rough to get through. It's pretty fucking articulate, and it's made by an absolute craftsman. He really did just a brilliant job, and you have all these levels to appreciate it. He makes this movie under the sole reason, I just want to make some money. The next film he did, he didn't end up directing it, he was originally attached to do it, was the Onassis film with um, Anthony Quinn and Jacqueline Bissett. So he goes from goat-fucking... Piss porn almost on this Greek island to Jacqueline Bissett and Anthony Quinn. As far as his career after this, like he made a film called Grandmother's House, which I believe Vinegar Syndrome put out on Blu-ray not too long ago, which has Uncle Leo as a deranged killer, um, which is it ain't great, but it you know it's it's a watchable, enjoyable exploitation film. He made a movie called Zero Boys that is again kind of had a uh, renaissance in the last five or so years, which is kind of like an action, action, action exploitation film. Uh, and the cold of the night, which is a nineties, like Skinamax exploitation film, blind date with Kirstie Alley. He's just made, Oh man, you're leaving out the best one. He made dot com for murder with Natasha Kinski and Huey Lewis. Oh, yeah, Roger Daltrey also is in that. It's a weird. Well, that... He made two boner <laughs> comedies in the eighties. He made Glitch and uh, Ninja Academy. Like, what the fuck? He has bounced all over the map as far as filmmaking goes, and he's currently still like uploading stuff to YouTube. So he's still like somewhat active to this day. I don't know if he's like interested in making films anymore, particularly, but I mean, he's still. A, like a member of the public. He wants to go back to the island as of 2015. I don't know how true this is in 2022, but he wants to go back to the island and make Island of Death 2, which would be a, a, a money grab. Clearly, I think he wants some money because we all know the secret. We've exposed it here. He made this movie, particularly for the paycheck. And you got to hand it to him even with that. This is somebody that he, he started in television and, and television and radio and uh, I, I I don't want to say the Greeks were a little bit behind, but up until the 70s, Greek television was still black and white, so he learned on a very older system compared to 
how most people were starting their projects in the 1970s. He was operating on 1940s and 1950s equipment and became very, very skilled and had an idea right off the bat. I know what I want to do and I want to make money. And you look at his career, I think he's, I'm sure he lives at least comfortably. I think he really has successfully managed a, a, a pretty nice career. Some of it's ridiculous, but especially having learned a lot of this and doing research for this episode previously and i i'm sure it's on the last video nasty we even talk about dreading this and how it's a terrible movie i've garnered a great deal of of different respect for it now i i really see the movie in a different light than i had previously and and what it took 100 percent was hearing from the director's mouth oh it's a fucking piece of shit i made it for money and that just opened up a door for me that let me appreciate it completely because I, I mean it's not the fact of the honesty <laughs> but yeah, the next movie we're going to talk about up until the director's death, they would come up with the most poetic fucking English professor bullshit for the movie, and it gets a little strenuous when you hear everyone invo- else involved in it talk about the movie, and you get, it's refreshing just hearing Nico say, like, oh, yeah, I don't, I'm not that, I don't care about that sort of stuff, I'm not into goat fucking, I just <laughs> wanted to make money off Americans, and he did. I, I think, like, for this viewing, for me, what I noticed more than anything was the color. The island itself, It's all, I think it's even written into law that the buildings have to be painted white to keep up a certain aesthetic. And, like, playing off the the color of the blood, the color of the uh, costuming on, uh, on the characters, and really playing it off this, like, mostly white, green for the hills, like, color palette it everything really pops and for someone who had his most expertise in black and white photography it's kind of amazing that he was able to like make such a almost like a technicolor experience with this film because if you look at uh, death has blue eyes it it's a little gray and muted in a lot of places and this is just vibrant um colors just popping everywhere and it looks it defies its budget by all means just because it looks so nice it looks like a um like a, like a Hollywood travelogue and it just really paints the location beautifully and just is very aesthetically pleasing. The gore isn't terrible either. I mean, comparably this is 1976, 1975-ish. It's, I, I wouldn't say superior, but drastically different to a lot of even like Argento and Fulci's. There's a lot of realism behind it. There's a lot of gritty, visceral naturalism to it that it wasn't like, the stage blood approach to things that there, when the violence is committed, what makes it so disturbing? I mean, aside from the fact that the character committing the violence enjoys it and doesn't seem to care is it looks pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty, 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 pretty for its era. It's, I mean, there's a scene I, I had mentioned where somebody's face is just torched with, a blowtorch and it are not a blowtorch. It's a can of aerosol spray and it melts. It, it looks painful. It's not a pleasant sequence to sit through. Nothing about it's pleasant. It's not a fun movie. And at the same time, it's like, well, you should still see it. And I don't, but you know, it's hard. You can't really tell somebody to watch something like this because you can't judge what they can take. And I think that's like, what's kind of interesting is the play, the interplay with the visuals and what the story is of just taking something so beautiful and making it kind of so wretched at the same time. And on this viewing, that's really what I was like focused on more than anything, because I think in the next film, that's also a big part of it is like taking music, taking location and really kind of 
changing what could be a ridiculous idea for a film, which is just depravity on display and making it kind of enjoyable in a certain way, but also so horrible in another way. Uh, and just really playing those two off each other. And I think that it, this one is way more successful than I'd say uh, the next film we'll be talking about as far as as far as that idea is concerned. Although uh, David Hess's music, Last House on the Left, uh, I would say overall wins a like, I don't know, it's it's so morose of a tone, even though some of the music is so happy at the same time. I think what Last House on the Left manages to be more successful with than Island of Death is the emotion behind what we're following and what we're seeing with Island of Death, it it becomes nonchalant about midway through the movie where you've just, you've gotten used to the atrocities that are being committed. And one of the characters is starting to break away from it and is being upset by all the things that are happening. And it, it, none of it really seems to matter. It doesn't seem to, even at the end of the film to me, it's not really clear what's going to happen. One character's dead, but does not matter? Nothing nothing really matters, and at the end of The Last House on the Left, you are left with the question of, you know, who are the real killers? What, what, Jesus, what does matter? It's a much more like Albert Camus doesn't matter sort of thing. You're, you're looking kind of into the abyss and questioning yourself when you finish the end of that movie because it... It's just brutal. It's and I, I hate seeing people use the What's term. that line in um Dawn of the Dead? It's that that what Franny says and just what have we done to ourselves? And that's kind of the same thing, Last House on the Left, is at the end of the film, the family is sitting there, and we'll get into Last House in a minute where I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but just sitting there like knowing what they've done and how they've let this act and these people change them forever as well. And like what am I? What have I become at this point? Which is the second time that actually happens in the movie. But we will get to Last House on the Left in a little bit. It it really to me just comes down to the emotion. But so many people call Last House on the Left a nihilistic movie, and I think Island of Death is a bit more nihilistic. Way more. Yeah, there's there's no real lesson being learned here. It's just an express tour of violence and sadomasochism. As to where, despite there being a point Last House on the Left, it being a very bleak one, it's still has one it's got something you can grasp onto when you finish this movie i mean what what do you have to imagine i mean is she just gonna live with this mute sheep herder and fuck for the rest of her life and have weird mute sheep herder kids or is she gonna kill him and move on who cares where does it go from there and that's that's kind of a problem with me that you can't even have a grasp of what's next it just ends as it began in a very stark depiction of violence and brutality well, I mean, and it, so it ends with her with this this goat farmer and what happens to him, and just it's the kind of the ending is just like all of this that you've just watched has been pointless, like pointless as far as her life is concerned. That all the things that her and her brother have been through, like none of that matters. None of the love we have for each other's siblings as lovers matters because now I'm with this guy. Nothing that has happened in the last 90 minutes has mattered at all. Uh, Life is filled with horrible things and sometimes good things, and that's it. Don't look too hard into it. And that last act, the, uh, the, the, the 12th scene of the movie, gets to a point where she starts having these dreams about the guy and that it, it goes into maybe a psychic-ish angle, and it just falls apart. It has... That that so you can respect something like I've been. I like this movie, but I don't like it because it doesn't go anywhere. It's an experience of 
it's an experience of a, of a grotesque. It's a test of might, no matter what. Can you sit through it without going and doing something else? Can you make it through this? And then you make it to the ending, and it's like you've been gypped. The director made this movie to get money, and to this day, I, I have the Arrow Video Special Edition Blu-ray. Yeah, I got kind of fucking gypped. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> fucking A, man. I, I gave them like 30 Look bucks. at the art. It's pretty, though, isn't it? It's got a reversible slipcover, and uh, well, really, what? Thank the, God. The money out of this set, I think, what is awarding is just being able to watch five special features with Nico Masterakis saying, "Oh, it's a piece of shit, terrible fucking movie, uh, just awful." I'm gonna make a sequel. Ter- <laughs> I li- I think I gained respect for this completely because of him. Let's let's put it that way. If you want to enjoy yourself. You need to let go that this is going to fucking take you anywhere. That this is going to be a positive, good experience. Or that it's going to change your life in some way, like how a lot of the other, like, um, more hardcore horror films that, you know, have made a list over the years of, like, ah, Human Centipede, ah, there was the Poughkeepsie tapes, and all, like, throw all that shit out the window and just kind of go into it, watch it cold, and stop trying to be, because that was my problem seeing the first seeing it for the first time was getting told of how extreme of film this was. And I watched him like, ah, it's pretty seventies. And that's about as far as I could take. It's just, I, I couldn't suspend my disbelief of like, yeah, it's got a lot of objectionable things, but so what? And then now watching in the future, yes, it's got a lot of objectionable things in it, but seeing how the elements play off each other is way more interesting than just going into it for a, you know, like a dare experience of like, oh, the first time I saw House on the Edge of the Park. It's just get it out of that frame of mind and just go into it as watching a film. Island of Death suffers from something that I have regularly referred to before as snuff syndrome. It's a legendary movie. You hear about it. The Finlays make it. It's one of the most disgusting films ever made. Snuff. It's a terrible fucking movie. You finally hunt it down. You see it. It's terrible. I've talked about that story a few times before. What really? But Hank. It was filmed in Argentina, where life is cheap. Ladies and gentlemen, the bloodiest thing that ever happened in front of a camera. Snuff. This is the true story of four innocent young actresses who thought they were making just another movie, but didn't know they were making the ultimate movie. only be made in South America, where life is cheap. Snuff, the bloodiest thing that ever And then you watch the entire movie for one low-rate scene right at the very end. But what makes that important is the experience of, of hearing about it and going through it. And if you've not seen this movie and you, you've heard us talk about it, I still don't strongly fucking recommend it, but it's something that exists and it's there. But what really differs from most of the movies that you hear about, and I mean, you can call it snuff syndrome. It could even be video nasty syndrome because it's much more common with the nasties. You'll hear about them. You'll be told about them. You'll hear about how terrible they are and you watch them. And for the most part, they're all right. You can get through a lot of them, like the the Beyond. That's on the, the nasty section two list. It's not specifically that terrible. Island of Death kind of holds up to its name maybe out of all of the video nasties it really is remarkable in the sense of 
if you if you saw it in 1976 and you watched it again now, it it more than likely at one point is going to make you go, "What the fuck? What the fuck, man?" It it's going to shock you even if you're unshockable because there's just so much presented to you on screen. And it's it's nonstop. There are no breaks, even in these beautiful sequences that Nash has talked about, where you're walking through this Greek island and you see these backdrops that are just stunning and gorgeous and it's shocking and white. Something atrocious is either going to happen or just happened. And that itself is kind of remarkable. And this is where we discuss uh, why was this film banned? Um, everything, several things. Almost everything that happens in the film, probably. I mean, they use farm tools, they use power tools, they use industrial tools. Every form of household objects is turned into a weapon. There is incest, bestiality, rape. Uh, I, I believe multiple rapes. There's there's men raped. There's women raped. There's animals raped. You've got you've got it all, really. There's not much like fucking around with this one, where uh, we generally know why this one was such a hot button issue for the uh, BBFC at the time. And uh, this is where we read from uh, The Art of the Nasty Book by Nigel Wingrove and Mark Morris of where the film is basically at now as of like 2015, I'd say or so, maybe 2011. I can't remember exactly when this book came out, but where uh, the film is at now in England. Island of Death, although a sticker on the back of the video sleeve indicated that this was a BBS, BBFC-approved X version, this was far from the truth. AVI had, in fact, unleashed the full uncut version, though it had been passed with cuts under the title A Craving for Lust. In April of 1976, it was rejected outright when submitted for a video classification in 1987 under the bogus title Psychic Killer 2, subsequently passed with cuts of four minutes and nine seconds. So it's still edited to this day of about four minutes. I, but if it's Arrow's putting it out, I doubt anybody's really following these, particularly at this point anyway. I didn't do my usual research of looking up the discs and telling you the specifics. With Last House on the Left, I will in a little while talk about some differences of the mini versions. But when it comes to Island of Death, I'm sure if you find a copy of, of the Arrow version or you use the Arrow streaming channel, it's, it's I mean... I hate being repetitive. We've talked about how beautiful it is, but it is very gorgeous. This is one of the nicest restorations I've seen in a long time just because the locations that the film is shot at are just so beautiful. Cleaning it up from the original negatives, it's so much more enchanting that you're watching this fucking horrible, horrible movie, but it's so beautiful. Yeah, and with the cuts of the four minutes of cuts, I mean, this was DVD era when this book came out pre-Blu-ray, so I'm sure a lot of this stuff that has been edited over the years. I'm sure most of this is passing through at this point. But if you're looking for the uh, the VHS of this, if you're a Video Nasties collector, you're looking for the uh, AVI version of it. And uh, doing a little research, I found over the past 10 years or so that it generally sells for about 200 pounds. Probably the most expensive copy I saw sold for uh, 218 pounds. So it's a you know, it's a fairly nicely priced uh, video nasty worth a fair amount of money. It's not one of the uh, the one the cheaper end of things anyway. And I'm certain the Arrow video is they did a restoration from the original negatives from Nico Masterakis. So I'm sure that's the the greatest version that you can find if you are a purist. If you need to see every utter sequence of violence. I know, I again, being repetitive, I've said this before, I can't really recommend this as something to casually watch, 
But at the same time, it really is a challenge to get through. And I think it's both of these films are very provocative. But when you get to the end of this, you are left, I think, I'm almost mad. I feel mad at the end of it because there is such utter hopelessness. And then we just move into Last House on the Left talking about hopelessness. The road leads to nowhere. And the road leads to nowhere. This is the part of the show where you need to start repeating. It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. Just keep repeating. Just keep repeating. It's only a podcast. Just keep We've talked about this movie many times before in our storied, almost 13-year history at Death by DVD, and... Each time we talk about it, I think maybe we have a little bit more passion each each time, but it, it I lose a little bit more of my soul, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, and it, it it wasn't this was hard too. We it's not that we put this video nasty off, but there's a lot of different stuff that goes on with Death by DVD and we both have lives that sometimes do get in the way of your entertainment. So other episodes happen. We finally get back to this and it was like an immediate sigh of like fuck i gotta i gotta fucking deal with last house on the left again and i by well no we've means... talked about last house on the left so much and i've talked about it so much over the years and it's been dissected and talked about by so many different people and critics that it's just like how much more is there to say about last house on the left well what really got me thinking is like you know we we do have a handful of movies that are in our grab bag that we regularly make references to that we use as kind of a whipping boy and build other movies off of and obviously the Ramiro's Dead trilogy we use a lot on this show but Last House on the Left is something that we we do bring up a lot we bring up a lot of the emotion behind it and I I think our first episode was something like 2011 or 12 when we covered this movie uh here's a great death by dvd story this is how how much david hess did not want to work with us he agreed to do an episode about last house on the left and then he died the next day so we were going to even at at one point of our history of talking about this movie involve krug himself but (laughs) he apparently really did not want to do the show I mean, he could have just emailed me and said he was busy or something like that. But David Hess was a very dramatic guy. Uh, he, he was a very powerful person. And what you see with this movie is what you get. There There is no fake in it. There is no lies. There is no camera trickery. Everyone's abused. Everyone's shocked. By the end of the day, everyone's hurt. Last House on the Left is an insane experience itself. But so many people have seen it. So many people have written about it. Everyone has something to say about it. And largely, I think most of them miss the point. I think they really don't touch upon what matters and the emotion and just the chaos behind this. And a lot of it comes to the production and how things came together. David has Fred Lincoln behind the scenes, possibly being the true directors of this movie. But at the end of the day, we get it right and uh, everybody else gets it wrong. 
That's where my statement's going. <laughs> Including up until like the remake. The remake completely got it wrong because, I mean, the remake has a lot of objectionable things and it goes a lot of places, but it seemed to miss the entire point of what Wes Craven is trying to say, which I discussed earlier is what have we done to ourselves? And in the remake, it's just like, no, these people wronged us and we wronged them fucking back and revenge is righteous. And that's not particularly what Wes Craven was saying. Basically, violence begets violence and violence in all like senses of it is all fucked up and it's all wrong and it all it fucks up everybody's lives. The people who commit the violence as well as the people who've had the violence committed on to them. And we can all go to IMDb and we all know the same fact that this movie is is heavily based on Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring. And when you take that into consideration, just having seen the film myself and you watch the transitions and you watch and I mean it's an ancient story. It's not just a matter of fucking seeing that movie. It's a folk story. It's it's very basic. They find that the people they've let into their home killed their daughter and they take revenge on it. And the simplicity of that story is 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 like throw, it's it's rever, I can't think of the word I want to use. It's like throwing a stone into a pond. You know those ripples are forever. You look at what these characters have to deal with, uh, bringing up Island of Death. What what do you think about at the end of the movie? There's no place for these characters to go. There's there's no room for evolution. There's no room for thought. When you get to the end of Last House on the Left, it's like throwing a, a a stone into a pond. All these ripples are going to forever move in these people's lives. You get to the end of this movie, and all you can think about is how devastating what the actions these people had to commit are and that it is going to affect them forever. They're never going to be normal. They're never going to have a normal life. They're never going to feel happiness again. It continues. It's like this massive dark shadow that that looms over you when you finish the movie. Nothing is okay. Fucking nothing at all is okay. And that's that's a lot of the point. You You have to be... Uh, broken going through the experience of this movie to get to the end to almost realize that and and you had brought up with with the the quote from Dawn of the Dead you know what have we become what's going on here you have this question with the parents but it's brought up throughout the movie a lot more I, I don't know if we need to get into the specifics of what happens in this movie but two teenage girls reading from uh, IMDb here Two teenage girls heading to a rock concert for one's birthday try to score some marajahuji in the city where they are kidnapped and brutalized by a gang of psychopathic convicts. There's a sequence in the movie where somebody is killed, and uh, the people that killed them did it in the most brutal, horrible manner. They, they eviscerated them, they took their guts out, and they stand around and they're disgusted. I think that's like the most beautiful fucking just groundbreaking sequence in all of Last House on the Left is when Krug and company kill Phyllis and they look at each other like, oh, wow, we're we're fucked up. And they go yeah, bathe. Well, before that, it was all fun and games. It was like, I mean, even up to the, the music that's playing, it's all very bouncy folk music. And then when this despicable scene happens, it's holy fuck. We've just like changed ourselves even like we've pushed ourselves to such limits that I don't even know who I am anymore. I'm I capable of these sorts of things, even though I am already a criminal piece of shit to begin with. Uh, it's it's a weird frame of mind, but it's almost like they've baptized themselves in violence, that they're, they're reborn in the blood of Phyllis. They've committed this atrocious act and then they all go down to the lake and they wash themselves of it. They're disgusted with it on their flesh, but they're the ones that committed it. They've, they've the whole time, and when you're introduced, I mean, this is a fucking storied movie here, so 
I know we're jumping around as if you, the audience, knows it, and you might not. Everybody's seen Last House on the Left, and if they haven't, why you listen to our show? You get a lot of introductions in this movie. I guess I'm going to do a comparative piece between this and Island of Death throughout the show. You get to understand who your characters are in Island of Death, but it doesn't stand for anything, and it's just... I don't I don't know if it's provocative violence, but it most certainly is just violence that's thrown in your face. You get an introduction to your characters here, and it's a really great scene. I'll say multiple times, one of my favorite scenes, and say it like 15 times. You can't have 15 favorite scenes. There's a great scene with Fred Lincoln uh, at the very beginning of the film playing the character Weasel, listening to a police report about how awful they are about... <laughs> The daring daylight escape of the two convicted murderers, dope pushers, and rapists cost the lives of two prison guards, and surprisingly, the life of a German shepherd. According to eyewitness reports, the animal which was set after the two fleeing men was kicked to death by a young animal-like woman who leaped from the getaway car. The alleged driver of the car was Junior Stillo. Junior Stillo is the illegitimate son of the leader of the two escapees, Krug Stillo, who was serving a life sentence for the 1966 triple slaying of a priest and two nuns. Krug Stillo is reputed to have hooked his own son on heroin to control the youngster's life. The man is armed and considered extremely dangerous. The second escaped convict is identified as Fred Weasel Podowski, who has a long police record for child molesting, peeping Tomism, and assault with a deadly weapon. The three men were accompanied in their getaway by an unknown woman, described only as young, strong, and animal-like. Police believe the four may still be in the New York City area, but expect them to try to leave the state within the next 48 hours. Thanks. Sounds like good advice. Child molestation and murders and all the things that they're doing while he's cleaning his gun and he's laughing, and you immediately, in these seconds, you get to know who we're dealing with. We know who these characters are. And from the the moment this movie starts, it's just, it's 42nd Street, man. It's that grimy, frightening New York that you used to hear about where your life didn't matter, you get killed in two seconds in Alphabet City. The movie oozes a, a, a fear. It seems like a, a scary animal in the woods and you start venturing through it and then you see David Hess, who is <laughs> a scary animal in the woods. And to me, it's almost operatic. It, it's such a, a, a wild array of emotions, fear, terror, disgust, pain. Everything that you experience in this movie is just a, a cataclysm of emotion and pain. At the end of the day, it's it's a fairy tale. It's a Grimm's fairy tale. It's Little Red Riding Hood all over again of meeting the monster in the woods and then the monster coming home and putting on a facade to uh, try to justify the means at the end. But um. <sighs> A lot of people, and you will hear people talk endlessly about the cops in this film, that the cop scenes seem pointless, we need to cut these scenes out, but I personally enjoy the Martin Cove stuff and the chicken truck and all that because I think if you didn't have some of that in there, it would just be just too unrelenting to deal with the atrocities that are going on through this film, and then it just ends in this kind of horrible just like pile of the rubble of uh, people's lives and at least the cops little subplot is there to kind of 
break up the monotony of violence that's going on. And, and honestly, it keeps you from getting too, um, too used to it. And like, you know, just too codified of what's happening. And it, it really does break up some of that. Um, and a lot of people would prefer the, uh, being, having a lot more tension throughout the whole thing. But I just think if you didn't have, um, a lot of the music, a lot of the cop scenes, a lot of that, I just think overall, I don't think the film would have been as successful because it would just be too much of a chore to, to really deal with. Um, and just the levels of sexualized violence that are going on in this film. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, uh, doing preparation for this show, we we years ago we did an episode on Death by DVD celebrating the life and legend and lore of Chaz Ballin one year to his death, one year the one year anniversary of his death. And we had some of his friends on. We had the legendary Greg Goodsell. We had Stephen Bissett, the creator of Swamp Thing. We had Roy Frumkey's on the show. And during that episode, Roy was talking about how a company. I'll, I'll cut some of this in so the audience can hear it too. Or you could just go back and find the episode, Death by DVD Classics, Chaz Ballin. Here's Blood in Your Eye, a tribute to Chaz Ballin. I'm sorry, that's what it's called. And Roy is talking about how a company reached out to him and they were going to do restorations of Last House on the Left and how he had the, the original print sitting above his desk at the time period that we were recording the episode, just kind of hanging out and sitting there. And it turns out that was what the film that he was working on was. It was this Arrow restoration, the very first one. I don't know if it was the box set or not, but it was the first restoration with uh, the director's cut. Up until then, you only had the Krug and Company cut, and now you have the definitive director's cut, which has about 8.5 seconds worth of difference in it, some dialogue, and that's, that's literally it. That's all it stands for. I really think I've exhausted that. I, I that that last batch that I dug up the porn stuff, that was I I had really forgotten that that was there. Um, Wait a second, um, was this the stuff on the MGM? Uh, it was um, the most recent release, the one in Britain. It might have been the one in Britain. I I produced the, but it might have been MGM. What what I came up with was uh, Wes's copy of the script. And about five minutes of um, um, almost hardcore stuff. Yeah, I think that I, I just bought that British uh, three-disc edition that came out like a month or two ago. Uh -huh. And it was in there. So I, I don't know if it's been made available in the U.S. yet. Huh. The, um, the script was really revealing because it's just, it's just filled with Wes's notes and uh, it's very strong stuff. Did wow. they ever show the rat scene that was supposed to be in that film? Well, I don't know. I, you know, the 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 way I got the footage was uh, I had I'd gone to, I'd seen it playing on you know in New York, and I I thought it was terrific, and I thought it was you know I, it was clearly someone's first film was clearly shot in sixteen millimeters. So I took the name of the distributor and I just sent Wes off a, a note, you know, uh, congratulating him. And two weeks later, this box arrived with all the outtakes all the scripts and he, and he said if you like it so much you can say you know you can archive it he said they they spit at me at the screening my own crew you know i it, i didn't put it on my resume i'm ashamed of it and it's funny so then when when i um i guess it was a guy named dave shulkin got a hold of me uh and this was several years ago for, for shulkin the first, and i are good friends for the first um 
DVD, I guess, you know, director's cut release of it. And he said, could we, could I use some of those outtakes? And after the disc came out, uh, I get the phone rings and it's Wes, you know, calling. And he said, he said, I don't believe you bothered saving that shit all these years. <laughs> you could not believe it. But... <laughs> so, you know, it really it extols the virtues of being a pack rat, you know. God bless you. Well, then I, yeah. I guess I can add something to this that Chaz would have been happy about. When when um, Wes and I tried to make a director's cut of Last House, and this was a kind of a revised director's cut, we, there was a print, a very long print, 35 millimeter, up on a shelf in, um, what's his name's closet, the guy that uh, produced it. Um, oh, Sean Cunningham. Sean Cunningham's closet. We pulled it down, and I... I said, Wes, the, the, the version that's out there is just so, you know, it's like R-rated. I said, why don't you fiddle with this and add stuff back in that, that you would have? And uh, he he added in some of the gore, you know, but he there was a lot more stuff with the sheriff and the deputy, and he didn't add any of that in. I mean, obviously, he wasn't that crazy about it either. Mm. So, so, I mean, it, you know, I remember that very clearly. I also remember one winter... Pretty long ago, I was downtown near the West Village, and there was a, a Santa Claus standing there, like ringing a bell. And I went up and I recognized him, and it was the guy that played the sheriff. I guess his name was Marshall Anchor. Yeah. And I introduced myself, and uh, I took him into McDonald's, and we sat down, and I bought him um, some coffee. And I said, uh, you know, what do you think about Last House after all these years? And he and he looked at me very seriously, and he said, I think I was the best thing in it. <laughs> well, you know, Jeremy Rain, who plays the female, was married to uh, Richard, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah. Richard Dreyfus at one point, and it was just very odd. Yeah. <laughs> a very crude film with bad lighting, and it's rather artless. You can't say that about Texas Chainsaw, which is very well thought out and artful. I agree. Yeah. It, but it's not artful. And on that episode, I, I bring up just what you were discussing with Roy, with everyone, where I was quickly shut down by all of you. Every <laughs> Greg Goodsell, Steve, you, everyone was like, no, 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 no. The Martin Cove scenes are, are very important. And what's uh, why I'm telling the story is that episode, God, I, I think I was 21 years old. I think I was 21 when we did that. And years go by, and this is a, a very legendary film. I have multiple copies of it. It's something you show people, you see... Whether you like it or not, you you end up experiencing as a horror fan Last House on the Left pretty regularly in the wild. It shows up and it's, you know, people talk about all the time, oh, if I see Goodfellas on TV, I gotta stop and watch it. If I see something like this or Fulci on fucking TV, I will stop and watch it no matter what's going on. And it grows on you over time and you start to learn and appreciate things. And you can look at this movie from an extreme angle and it, it does nothing. 
there there has to be and it's not a moment of light it doesn't need to be a moment of comedy or something to get you through it you need to have something other than the absolute dire negativity and it, even the the sheriff uh, marshall anchor aside it's fucking martin cove martin cove's character brings everything that's necessary to this movie being watchable i don't think without them at all that you'd be able to suffer through it i think that it would be just such an experience and nihilism you you don't have hope and it's not that like there's slapstick stupid fucking characters there's a chicken truck scene they they stop and it seems to drag the movie onward but when you allow it to almost be like a palate cleanser to accompany these scenes of absolute violence it, it brings a new level of realism people constantly in this day and age you you see these comments on the internet things didn't used to be like this the world didn't used to be this bad. And then you have movies like Last House on the Left and Island of Death from the early 70s. Yes, they did. Things were always this bad. Clearly, these concepts were in people's minds years and years and years and years and years ago. But at the same time, there's always some fucking innocence that's involved in it. And I think that's really where the necessity of those characters come from. But it might be something that comes over time and experience of seeing brutalized things happening in real life, realizing that Last House on the Left isn't that far off from reality. It's not, you know, I, we've discussed well, it as I a would say it's tale. one of the most, uh, the first reality-based horror films that was taking horrors of the day of especially like the hippie movement, your children going out, doing drugs, not knowing where they're at, um, partying, going to rock concerts, and all the things that were in parents' heads that, that could happen to them and taking those and realizing them on the screen. Um, so, because horror before then had been, I mean, even up to 1968 with Night of the Living Dead, it was all somewhat fantastical and last house on the left is one of the really the first horror films that was not some noir style thriller by alfred hitchcock it was down and dirty the realities of actual violence in that are going on in the world that no one talks about and no one ever discusses and it's not shot like your average film it, it, it's almost documentary style and it, it's painful to go through this the scene where Mary is is raped there's like four cameras running on her at all time and the way the movie cuts and transitions back and forth between you seeing these moments of pain it's it's all too real and and I really like how you had mentioned it is fairy tale like the movie begins in a very whimsical manner and there's a lot of realism uh, something that I always thought was really important to who these people are, who who the characters are, is at the beginning of the scene when Mary's getting ready to leave and she's not wearing her bra and even her dad's like, what what are you doing, you know? You can't go out like that. And she says something about tits and it's it's very natural. The father's like, ah, oh, tits, what is all this talk? It's like I'm back in the barracks. And they have this normal fucking conversation. I mean, this is, this is an early 70s movie and you've got the teenage daughter talking about tits with her father and her mother and they're all taking it. They all love each other. But it's a modest. So I'll get some sandpaper. Look, young lady, when I was your age, when you were my age, you all wore brassiers that made your tits stick out like torpedoes or something. Tits? What's this tits business? Sounds like I'm back in the barracks. All right, then. Mammary glands. They used to tie them up like little lunatics in straight jackets, and they stuffed socks in their bra. Mary! You told me that yourself, Mother. If God had meant women to go around with their bust exposed Mary Collingwood. He wouldn't have given us clothes. You 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 get this whimsical, if anything, that might be <laughs> the most story uh, story thing about the movie, uh, the most fairy tale thing about the movie is the family you're introduced to is nice. Mary and her mom and her father, they all love each other and they're happy and you get this 
whimsical moment between all of them. And I think that's a really great piece of dialogue of, of the whole tits thing. And it, it shows the naturality of them, the love of them, the compassion of them. So when you get to the end of the movie and these terrible vulgar acts that Mary's parents committed, it makes sense because you, you get in just those few moments how much they loved her, how much they naturally were a family and how everything was perfect. And that's really iconic with making you feel something. I mean, let's let's look at another Wes Craven movie, Scream, the very beginning of the movie. You get Drew Barrymore's character being killed. I don't care, though. I mean, who is she? she she's waiting for her date, uh, and things are going, okay, you killed somebody, it doesn't matter. And just those brief seconds of well, having... Scream is like a, like a hyperactive version of a 1980s slasher film. It's not and really based on any sort of reality. It's like through a film-addled brain of reality as opposed to Last House on the Left, which is as close to reality as you're really going to get for a film made in the, like the early 70s like this. But at least you see my comparison between what you, you can get and just uh, almost nothing. It's the naturalization of who these characters are. When Phyllis is introduced, you have the, the conversation with Mary and her mother beforehand that she comes from... I, I guess a, a lesser family. Her mother's concerned about her hanging out with someone like that, and it's it's obviously not the problem. It wasn't her and Phyllis going out. It's just the evil in the world. There is always a positive and negative that somehow exists at the same time, and that's what Krug and Company is. They're wolves. They're they're monsters that were hiding and waiting for this situation. So it's fear. It, it's you're 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 using. Multiple types of fear here because Last House on the Left has a really decent advantage of attacking everybody. You as a parent, you could be a parent and watch this film and it's terrible thinking that this could happen to your child. You as a young person going out into the world, going and exploring the unknown, you could be terrified that this is happening to you. It's very ageless in its terror because no matter what the situation is, people like Krug exist. That's what makes this so scary. David Hess used to say regularly, you know, uh, I do these horror conventions all the time and I meet Kane Hodder and I meet Robert England and they all fucking wear masks. And I'm the one guy that didn't have to wear a fucking mask, you know, and, and that itself is terrifying because it's in everybody's face. It's it's anybody out there could be Krug. Anybody could be that person. And that's what's terrifying. That's what makes this remarkably terrifying and it's uh, like island of death i i don't find it pleasant i don't enjoy sitting down and watching last house on the left it usually is a feat and a trial for me to get through but it's remarkable to get through it, it's it's a challenge uh, certainly but it's something at the end of the day you i, I don't know it, it it asks more questions than i think you're able to answer and when you have a piece of art like that when you finish watching the movie and you just can't watch something else you you have to just sit there and you have to think about it i think you've made a masterpiece whether or not you liked it well i think a lot of it is just due to like david hess's performance as the lead and the fact that when you get to the uh, the violence and more specifically the sexualized violence, it's so based on degradation and like things that are like so much more reality based. And it's so much about the words that they are saying as opposed to like any amount of gore or anything like that. It has so much to do with the acting within the scene and the 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 genuine fear of the actress who's being assaulted and and things like that not so much of 
the acts themselves, but even just so like as far as the acts are portrayed by uh, the characters and done in that kind of um, of the time period, like Vietnam documentary footage of just like straight up. This is what's happening. And this is like no movie tricks, no gimmicks. This is what violence is. And it's in your face. Um, I, I brought it up on every last house show that um, that we've ever done. And I don't know how many people brought it up on other essays and descriptions of the film. But the thing that has always affected me is the, the piss your pants scene because it's degrading. Um, and it's also like, as far as I'm concerned, like just it almost like it almost infant infantile infantile infantiles you. I can't say the fucking word. Infant infantilization? No, I don't know. Infantilization? Yes, I, fucking, I, I think I might have made that word up. Piss your pants. You sick mother. <laughs> Piss your pants. There's there's something around that same sequence that I think might be, I mean I'm I'm not like arguing with you saying something's more powerful than the other, but in in the sequence where Mary and Phyllis are forced to get naked with each other, uh, Phyllis says something to her around the effects of like it's just us here, nobody else is here, it's just me and you here, and that's really that that hits me almost a little harder than the piss your pants scene is her knowing, Phyllis knowing how bad this is going to be, but she's still protecting Mary. She's trying to even help her disassociate to get through how venomous this is, possibly facing her own death. And there's it's something just there's heartbreakingly beautiful about that because they're forcing well, them to it gives to be... the character, like, that's, that's what the character is. You have felt it. It's never been explicitly stated throughout the film, but you feel this kind of motherly tendency of Phyllis and then that scene happens and it really does rake you over the coals of just like, oof. And, and they're telling them, you know, these psychotic killers are standing there telling them to get it on and she's just cowering but holding her friend, telling her, it, it just, it's just us, no one else is here. And you had mentioned, I mean, David Hess really is a striking performance in this movie and Hess is the best, but the combination of Jeremy Rain, Mark Scheffler, and Fred Lincoln together, Fred had the most experience out of anyone working on films and a lot of the ideas in this movie... There's always a constant argument, but Fred Lincoln probably did most of the directing. He came up with most of the really bizarre concepts. David Hess refused to leave character. He was Krug Stilo the entire time. But Jeremy Rain, she was 21 years old. She's supposed to be playing like a 40-year-old woman. Absolutely insane. She's vicious in this movie. And, and there's just like... 
there's small scenes that you don't even really pick up on until you watch the movie again or you start realizing how depraved they are, that they've got the girls in the trunk of the car and they're driving down the road and Jeremy's just fucking David in the back seat. She's just riding him while his son is driving the car. And meanwhile, the song playing is about them kidnapping the girls. It's so fucking meta. Yeah, we talk about this A24 art crowd shit, which don't get me fucking crossed. I am a big A24 art crowd guy. I fucking watched Lamb like nine times, man. It's great. I love it. It's fantastic. I eat that shit up. But this was way before that. You know, you, you got all these fucking articles about X going around right now, how it's the first of its type. Fuck you, last house on the left. We're forced to hear the soundtrack about them raping and killing these girls while driving down the road watching the characters just have promiscuous sex and do drugs and live up life. Uh, fuck you, Christopher Nolan. This is meta. This, <laughs> this is some deep shit. Bringing up the cast of players, just to, to quickly talk about all of them, I know I, I briefly did that, talking about Fred Lincoln and his previous experiences. He did, I mean, he, he, he was a guy that really, I guess, had it made. In his words, somebody said to him, hey, you want to get paid to fuck on camera? And he said yes, and then ended up fucking on camera for a great deal of his life, and it was a very prolific director, writer of adult films. I really think when you talk about Last House on the Left, a lot of the titles and credits need to be given to him and David Hess for what they maybe took I think too they far. The immediacy to it, because basically you had Sean Cunningham as producer, Wes Craven as writer director, and they were some like you know college professor motherfuckers and just like businessmen. They weren't like they weren't in this like you know the, the dark, the darkness and the crime scene and like fred lincoln knew mobsters in his day i mean so i'm sure him and hess are the ones who really kind of put a lot of the grit on the film i mean what you really had with wes craven and sean s cunningham is they they got picked up to do a horror film and they were going to make a very explicit hardcore porn and it got to a point where it came down to yeah we don't need the fucking this is so over the top itself we don't need to have this full-on penetration and then as time came forward. I mean, I know Mark Scheffler tried out for the role of Junior. He was, I, I believe, working for Richard Towers, who's credited as, like, Gaylord St. Thomas or something. He played the father, Dr. John Collingwood. He tried out for the role and got it. David Hess, he, uh, his sister was dating Martin Cove, and Martin had done a tryout for the movie, and he, he was trying out for the role of Krug, and really didn't want to be portrayed that way and asked if he could be the deputy and told them, you know, I've got somebody absolutely fantastic for this and they know how to do music. David Hess enters the picture. I know Fred Lincoln and, and Jeremy Rain, I think they were a package deal that they were, they were friends beforehand. And But you do have, a, out of all of them, I mean, I don't know where everyone came from to make this a, a, as it was, but the lack of professionalism I think is something that really makes the, the cast of this movie Jeremy Rain character is supposed to be in her 40s and is just this vicious weird oddball and again drawing comparisons between Island of Death 
you've got a lot a lot of bad performances in that movie. The lead actress Jane Lyle was a model, and a lot of her performances, a lot of her her reading of the dialogue is just that she's dead reading the dialogue but it comes off kind of innocent it works for her advantage with the character you transition to last house on the left everything is so sharp everything is so dismal and it doesn't come off unprofessional despite the fact these actors completely no one but fred lincoln uh, and mark scheffler i believe mark had made a porn a porn before this movie he was the only person wearing clothes in the porn so he didn't get a good scene, clearly. And nobody else had done anything. Uh, Sean S. Cunningham and Wes Craven had done a porn before this, maybe one or two. I don't know how deep they had gotten I into think it. Sean, or, uh, Wes had done, was it Together? Which was like kind of a little bit more I think they I think light. they both did that. And then one, one of them was cutting porns for the mafia or something as the story goes, and, and they got the gig to do this. It, what matters is how it came together. And uh, like I've mentioned before, Fred Lincoln isn't specifically fond of this movie, and he has some regret for doing it, to where David Hess thought it was an incredibly powerful piece, that it had a, a great meaning and matter to it. And I don't think it matters what direction you have, what way you want to look at this movie, it's forever. Last Else on the Left truly was, like, the fucking meta movie of its time period. And you had Polanski doing stuff. You had Rosemary's Baby. There were a lot of movies that were a lot deeper than this. But bringing it to 42nd Street, bringing it to the drive-ins, everyone saw this. This was wildly and massively available and now in 2022, everyone's still fucking seen Last House on the Left. It's it's become remarkable for almost its lack of professionalism. You make an interesting point, though, because with something like Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, um, even to a point The Exorcist, those films all felt like, you know, Hollywood. They all felt like professionally made films. With Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it started this new crop of DIY horror that felt very unprofessional, but the more unprofessional it was, the more reality-based it seemed. Yeah, I would stick Romero in that. I, w I wouldn't say Night of the Living Dead was uh, explicitly Hollywood-looking. I would really give him that DIY. Well, I mean, yeah, but I'm just saying in general, it still has that, that almost science fiction sort of plot, and it, it's using a lot of um, Dutch angles. It's using a lot of film techniques and music and, like, you know, kind of needle drop classic music as opposed to, like, this all felt handmade. It's kind of erratic and, and frightening with Last Hells on the Left in Texas. I think it would be, you know, especially going back, if you could take a time machine and see Texas for the first time at a drive-in, I, I feel that it would be wild, that it would be chaotic, of who, who would put out something like this. This has to be real. Uh, yet alone, the movie it's telling It's being you, afraid of the actual filmmakers as much as it is being afraid of the film, that people would actually do this and make this film and call it art. Well, I mean, this holds something deeply in common with Texas Chainsaw Massacre because they both mention at the beginning of the film, these are real events. And you look at the audience, you look at the lack of technology as to where we have now, you believe what you see. It, it's very, very easy to fall into the idea that everything that you've been watching is a true story despite seeing the actors' names, despite there being sound. I mean, that's the whole story with... Chaz Ballin and Charlie Sheen, he he thought Flowers and Flesh and Blood, the guinea pig film, was a, a real snuff film. It's got a fucking soundtrack. 
It's it's got a soundtrack, man. It has production value. And when you're not completely blasted on coke and maybe seeing a movie for the first time in the 70s at a drive-in and you see something like this is real and they change the people's names, you really fall into that fourth wall of of forgetting that this is a movie. Krug becomes real. Krug becomes the most terrifying thing you've ever seen. And and when I watched this, when I sat down and watched Les House on the left, it, it he becomes the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. And he he was method acting the entire time, as as they like to say. Uh, David just would not leave the character of Krug, and I don't. I mean, that's you hear all this shit with with Jared Leto and how abusive and terrible he is, and how method acting can really derail people. You know, poor Heath Ledger got too deep into the Joker or whatever that shit is. It it can be borderline psychotic, but goddamned if it doesn't work sometimes. You you can't say it doesn't in this example. Well, I also think this and Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, really kind of started a new trend in horror and film in general where the immediate threat was no longer xenophobia. It was no longer the other, the outside force, whether that be like metaphysical, spiritual, supernatural, or even like, you know, from outer space, any of these sort of things. And it became like the true villains and the true antagonist of horror became us normal everyday Americans. Like the people who live across the street could be psychotic. They could be coming to kill you. And that has proliferate prolificated throughout time now as horror has kind of kept with that theme in a lot of ways of you're not safe behind your closed doors. This isn't a war that's going halfway across the world this is in your backyard literally your children getting murdered in your backyard and you not even knowing it but you bring up a really good point with the characterizations and the the depictions of 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 man as the villain you you have terrific things like godzilla and king kong you've got night of the living dead these are monster movies even going back to the first zombie film white zombie yeah it's a it's a person that's been tricked into being in this it's not like a flesh-eating zombie but when you look at villains from uh film in general you've got a lot of fantastical villains you've got a lot of monsters and giant men but there aren't a lot of hardcore ideas of man being evil uh you've got a movie called kiss of death with richard widmark in it playing Tommy. Yeah, night of the hunter i mean that could night of the hunter films really well with that i mean kiss of death and night of the hunter are two to great with because richard widmark plays a dude named tommy udo in that movie and he is just over the top absolutely evil he pushes this old woman down the stairs very famous scene if you've seen the dennis christopher movie fade to black it's it's completely replicated in it he takes over this richard widmark character a very early personification of man being evil. Night of the Hunter, right up there. That's actually a great double feature, Kiss of the Death and Night of the Hunter. You've got, not Dean Martin. <laughs> Fuck, it's not Dean Martin. I know that much. It's not, oh, God, who's in Night of the Hunter? Why do I not? Oh, Fucking... Robert Mitchum. Mitchum, there we go. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Night of the Hunter, you've got Robert Mitchum playing uh, similar. God damn, we keep transitioning to Island of Death. Somebody that is masquerading as a religious zelo that uses this iconography. Everybody's saying words tonight. I'm not even going to correct myself. Of religion to masquerade <laughs> as a good person. And and it, what's really frightening is that man in black concept. And, and you can take everyone from Last Else on the Left as as that that 
reminiscent look at death. These these harbingers of, of absolute doom and death. They're human. That's what's so fucking trademarkable about this. What's so devastating is there are no monsters. And despite the fact that the monsters are killed, now we just have new ones. It's it's this animosity and of the man. new monsters are fucking us. I mean, you have the the idea, you know, is the killing of killers genocide, the the death penalty. If you kill somebody that killed somebody, isn't that genocide? So if you are killing killers that killed, then you're no different than the killers. We've just entered this whole time as a flat circle concept. But that's really what is powerful. That's what makes this so haunting that you can forever question everything you saw. You question yourself, your morals, your standards. Uh, you you look at yourself deeply in a mirror when you finish Last House on the Left, and just as I've given accolades to Island of Death for the same thing, every time you watch this movie, it's painful, it's remarkable, it doesn't get old. If anything, it becomes harder to watch as you get older, because you live through terrible things. People live through so much, and, and movies don't matter at some points, but you know, 10-15 years later, the realization of what the character's fictitious or not are going through comes from some place of reality and I mean Wes Craven himself is a very interesting guy uh, got up until he went to college he'd never seen a movie he came from a very religious family there was no music no dancing no happiness no no nothing and he went out into the world in his 20s and started experiencing things and then came up with this that no matter who was was there while they made the movie the the direction of the movie who came up with the ideas Wes still wrote the concept, and coming from his mind, his background, and what he ended up making, I, I strongly feel Last House on the Left is his most triumphant work of art. I think it's his best. I think it's the most emotional and provocative. I think it... I, th I think it really is the trademark of his career, the, the, the pinnacle of his career, and I know every horror fan out there is sighing because everybody loves Freddy Krueger, and that's fine. You can love what you want to love. At a certain point, and I'm not like trying to like shit on Wes Craven or anything, but at a certain point, as a director, as an artist, you start to drink your own Kool-Aid, and Wes became way more intellectual with what he was doing and trying to do, and this is raw... Like Last Thessalonians is, is a super raw, like the back of his head, his lizard brain coming up with the idea and not trying to over intellectualize what he's doing. Um, and he creates this kind of really destructive piece of outsider art um, that he like really never did again. I mean, he always kind of started to lean a little bit more into fantasy and conceptual ideas. And this is just. I'll keep going back to the word raw, and that's what it is. It's just a raw exercise of the depravity of uh, humankind. I think Wes Craven kind of was Last House on the Left, capitalizing on, on what you were saying. He had a very repressed early upbringing, and he came out a, a long-haired hippie kind of freak coming out of this New York porn scene, and he made the most extreme piece of art that you could really make. I mean, I, I think a, a grand comparison is, is this movie and Pierre Paolo Pasolini's Salo, that there is so much to experience, there is so much to take, there is, is uh, so much devastating art, 
and and multiple layers and multiple translations of it. You can look at Salo, you can look at Last House on the Left a thousand different ways. And there there's even sequences in Last House on the Left where you begin feeling sympathy for the bad guys. That they have uh, gutted a character and then taken Mary out and shot her and they're disgusted by their own acts. They bathe in the, the lake, they leave and they end up going to Mary's parents' house. And her parents are... A, a bit bougie. They have a lot of nice things. They're successful people, and suddenly you start feeling bad for these characters that you've witnessed do the most reprehensible, horrible things. They're rapists. They're murderers. They're they're nasty people, and you start getting this tinge of sympathy. And it's like fuck, you know, using the term meta again. You really reverse the roles on us. That that Wes and you know, I I hate. The debacle. Who really directed this movie? It doesn't matter. Wes Craven was able to direct us in a way that we felt fucking bad for these heathens, these these terrible people. That's directing us. That's really a, a powerful mark. And and like you said, I don't think he ever touched it again. He's made great films. Well, but... I mean, he did hit class again. I think he hit like like ideas of class and class structure in several of his movies but this was like the first real time he did that i mean i hate bringing it up and being a dick about it but you have so much emphasis on scream a movie that he openly only made so he could make a family film with meryl streep his mind after this obviously went to bigger and greater places Wes Craven was a prolific man a, a beautiful thinker and a very intriguing writer but I, I think once he experienced a certain level of things, what else can you do? I, I, this wasn't like Island of Death specifically made just for money. That that was a big part of it. There was a big emphasis on making this movie. But there's a lot of personal touch from everyone involved that you can't separate that. You can't just say, okay, well, they still regardless made this movie just for a paycheck. There's too much of David Hess in this. There's too much of Fred Lincoln. There's too much of Jeremy. There's too much of Mark. There's too much of Sean, Wes, everyone. It's, well, it's, a kind it's of human. It's a situation of the, the, the planets aligning. It's all everybody's contribution to the film is what made it what it is today, as opposed to just like one singular voice. It's everybody's voice contributing to making this like insane piece of art and at the end of the day, it's forever. I mean, there's you can try and ban this. You can try and repress this. This movie, to this day, I don't think you can see uncensored in the UK. I think in Australia also, it's just completely the, the eight-second difference that you cannot see of dialogue. To this day, it's still censored, which is ridiculous. Jeez, Hank, why do you think it was censored? Let's get to that section of the show. You got, I mean, there's a million reasons for it, but... Something that Fred Lincoln said in an interview really haunts me and sticks with my mind of, you know, I don't know the truth behind it and it really doesn't matter what the truth is behind it, but just the fact that there was an accusation that there were some 30 rapes committed because of this movie, it does really make you consider what this art can do to people. And it does start giving you maybe a different understanding of... of Sometimes art can be weaponized. Sometimes the wrong person can see something and it triggers them to do something just horrible. You've got that, that whole Batman shooting situation. People are influenced in the absolute wrong reasons and it's it's them that are influenced that way, but can you blame the art? Can you significantly blame Last House on the Left? And Fred Lincoln and David Hess are both dead, so I don't know what if either of them ever got to an answer of this, but Fred felt very embarrassed by this movie. He wasn't specifically proud of it as to where David Hess, you know, was, was 
upset by that, that Fred made porn films and in his words, you know, sucking and fucking isn't harmful. And I see the situation from both people's perspectives and I, you know, I don't know where to go with it. I don't, I don't know what difference it is. Is Last House on the Left a harmful movie? It could be. Can porn be harmful? It, it can be. Everything can be. Anything can be weaponized. So you, you try and look at these sentiments. You try and look at these arguments about free speech and banning things and Kanye West and all this bullshit and garbage. And it's just so... Everything's so subjective. You have to actually look at it. And, and that's, I think, what we have successfully done with this is at least tried to allow perceptions and allow different venues of how you can look at things but that question really remains in my mind and it, it makes me wonder about movies like Last House on the Left is the weaponization of art something that is so dangerous that movies need to be censored or banned I don't know if there's a wrong or right answer you know it, it goes back to fucking Plato and Aristotle I, <laughs> I don't know well I mean you can break it down into ideas of this type of art can release some people's impulses for better or worse. Like some people can live vicariously through it. Some people it might cause them to act, but at the end of the day, who is really apt enough to make that decision and who is to judge of what art is and what art yeah. isn't because it's all so subjective and for you to claim for anyone to claim that like, no, this is art. This is trash. Then like that's completely like maniacal and egotistical. It's just like, that's, it's not for you to really be the judge of these things are meant to be discussed. It's a conversation piece. Yeah. I mean, I think really out of all of it, the question I raise itself is just, it's just that it's a question. It's a conversation piece. Uh, I kind of want to state, you know, I don't have any emphasis like this movie should be banned. I just think it's something that is an interesting concept. What, what Fred had to say that this movie can be weaponized, that there has been harm because people watch this movie and I'm sure it can be said for anything. I mean, look at I spit on your grave. I'm certain that there has been violence against women committed because somebody fucking watched that movie and thought from their perspective, that's something you can do. Island of death. Also anything, anything. All right, let's go through the art of the nasty and see uh, where the film is at today. And by today, I mean probably 2011 or 12. <laughs> Last House on the Left from the director of Scream. And this is my commentary. Really? That's how we're going to view Wes Craven from the director of Scream. But whatever. Okay, fine. Wes Craven's first feature was outright rejected by the BBFC in July of 1974. The video appeared in June of 1982 and was promoted in various video magazines with an outrageous full-page advertisement. Replay's British video release deleted a sequence providing several minutes of comic cuts being recommended by the committee members. 
Oh, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> I skipped a sentence. Providing several minutes of comic relief, period, an unsuccessful video appeals committee hearing in 2002 resulted in additional cuts being recommended by the committee members. But in March of 2008, a fresh submission finally resulted in an uncut DVD certificate. And uh, the VHS PAL version was from Replay Video and looking on the internet and seeing what they're basically selling for. Uh, generally around 50 pounds, uh, the most expensive price I've seen it go for was uh, 75 pounds. Uh, so it's apparently not that hard to find on um, the original PAL VHS, the you know the pre-certificate videotape. So this is a, probably a uh, an easier one if you want to get into collecting. If you want to start with the video nasty collecting, one of the probably one of the more affordable ones you can get. I'm not a big collector. I, I tend to just have things that I want to have, but this is something that I would enjoy having the the original for. So that's nice to know. It's it's price. It was it was so copied though. It was bootlegged. It was sent everywhere. This was one of the the early things I think for most horror fans, including myself, that you heard about, you were told about, and you wanted to see. You heard about how legendary this movie was, and very similar to Island of Death, it did pay it forward. I don't think it was a great disappointment. I think for me, uh, and I I remember when I first saw this movie, I remember just kind of sitting there like fuck. Like, like, just, there was nothing else. There was just a, a bitter word, fuck, and you sitting there kind of in desolation taking all of it in, and now I'm in my 30s, and I sit and watch the movie, and it feels the exact same way sitting in a, a dirty basement watching it as a teenager. I, I'm just broken by everything I see. And, you know, Wes Craven, director of Music of the Heart, he has done a lot of evocative stuff. Is that better than director of Scream? Is that <laughs> <laughs> that's a little bit yeah. better? Director I mean, of music, you can at least put Nightmare Elm Street something like besides, hey, go ahead and scream. Uh, I think I first saw it um, when I was 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. I watched a, a double feature of this and Basket Case. So that was a pretty uh, crazy night for uh, first time watches. I was maybe just a little older, like 13 or 14. And it, it's one of those situations where you look back and it's like, man. I, I wish that I had started with some easier shit because, I mean, you and I are from different generations and eras. So when I was 13 and 14, I was able to find some stuff easier on disc than you were able to find. So, I mean, I, I found Last House on the Left, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. I began my, my, my journey into explicit horror with some of the most fucking vile negative goddamn movies. Oh, shit. I had to order bootlegs. I had to video store hop. Um... I think the furthest I traveled was an hour to get to a video store because I knew they had a racer head. So I drove an hour, opened, I had to get my parents to open an account um, at a neighboring city an hour away's video store because it was the one copy of Eraserhead that I ever saw in the wild. I remember using my mother's credit card to buy things from Blackest Hearts Media, now infamously known as RottenCotton.com. It's, 
It's funny taking that memory trip back, though, and I think movies like both of these certainly do it, and what is fun about that, when you have seen these before, if you're a first-timer, I'm sorry you can't really draw from this experience, but when you've sat through this before, when you've had those memories and you can go back and you can relive it, Island of Death, I still don't think, has a great deal of effectiveness to it. But every time I rewatch Last House on the Left, I feel something different. And, and none of it's ever positive. It's always a deeper inner reflection on the people around us. I mean, this is an early 70s movie, and this is a stark depiction on the utter lack of humanity that was available even then. Things have only gotten worse. The, the world has only gotten worse. And I think... If you look at Last House on the Left the right way, it, it almost gives you a deeper appreciation of the good people, of of the people that aren't rapist fucking sociopaths. I don't know. There's there's a, there's an open window to looking at positivity through something like this, but at the same time, it's so stark. And with the rest of Wes Craven's career, I mean, you move into something like The Hills Have Eyes, which is a very political movie. I I think it's the same question asked at the end of that film that we have with this what have we become what has happened to us and he continuously does that you move into uh, Freddy Krueger Nightmare on Elm Street the reason he came back to haunt these children and to take their lives is because their parents fucking set him on fire was that the right thing to do was taking it into your own hands the right thing to do it's a very repetitive course that I, I i do think comes directly from wes craven's upbringing and when he finally got to to break into his own and be an independent young person he broke into his own at the height of the vietnam war and the very first time that you could see war on television. I mean, right now you can get on TikTok and you can watch videos of the Ukraine and all these terrible things happening. But in 1970, 1969, it was shocking. It was as shocking as his picture. And I think a lot of Last House on the Left directly comes from that time period, which makes it timeless because, shit, from the 70s to now, all, all, all of our cultures, every country, all we've ever been is turmoil and war and destruction 9/11 affected everyone it's it's been the same thing televised over and over and over again and you can watch last house on the left and it's almost refreshing it it it's i don't know if that makes sense you you get so desensitized to real violence and then you watch this it's almost like a refreshing reminder oh evil people live in the world weird rant i don't know <laughs> I don't know if I call it refreshing, but yes, I understand your point though. It's, it's yeah, it's not refreshing. It's, That's a bad I can word. Still, I still can feel that a piece of art can still affect me in a way. And I can still be afraid of men. I'm not I'm not afraid of the machine. I'm not afraid of the monster. You you get this stipulation in your life that you need to be afraid of something and you you just live your whole life afraid and you don't know what it is. It's humans. It's the humans that are as evil as robots and giant monsters or the Terminator. It's going to be a man that's going to be the problem. 100%. So as usual, we, we get to the end of the video, Nasties, and it's far deeper than, than when we began. This was... We discussed it months ago. It was going to be a challenge. Uh, and as I said at the beginning of this episode, we have a long history of talking about Last House on the Left. And I don't know if it's ever positive. I don't know if it's it's ever negative. I don't know what we're adding. I don't know if I've ever said, hey, I really like this movie because you can like it 
and I can I, I think I probably respect it more than I like it. It's like I, I said I liked Island of Death, but I, I don't mean like I like it. I don't sit down and watch it to get my jollies off. I have a great deal of respect for what it is, especially that movie because it's just a, a cash grab and I can appreciate that. Last House on the Left has a very remarkable way of changing your your thought process, changing you as an individual for the good, for the bad, I don't know. I, I really am stuck with, with Fred Lincoln's remarks about the movie. It's something, as a young person, I don't think I put a lot of thought into, and as I'm getting older, it really does stand out. What can movies like this do to people? And obviously, I, Alexander Nash, and myself have a stance on this this sort of art it's dangerous. Art is dangerous, and I don't think people recognize that. I don't think it, where we live in, in this time period, people remember that art is dangerous. And, of course, Warhol said that, and it's truth. He was shot because of his art and eventually died because of it. Uh, but art is dangerous. Last House on the Left, it's a dangerous movie. Is it made by dangerous people? Is it for dangerous people? I don't know. We can't tell you. But this has been the Video Nasties. A through Z with Death by DVD. Last House on the Left, Island of Death, a terrible double feature. Please watch these movies with discretion and ask yourself when you finish it, who are you? And are you all alone? The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. You'll hear from us next week. of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. You have been listening to the Video Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD. And now, previews of coming attractions. Two young filmmakers offering a low-budget parody on videotape and the internet are in trouble with the law tonight. The two young men apparently think the Columbine massacre is something to mimic. 
They made a movie called Duck, the Carbine High Massacre. On Tuesday, a New Jersey grand jury indicted the two filmmakers who made and star in the film. They did not have permission to be on school grounds, certainly not with two 12-gauge shotguns and a prop handgun. I thought it was repulsive, very poor taste. That's how Sergeant Bernard Lombardo describes the video Duck, the Carbine High Massacre. I don't want to die. The scenes are hauntingly real capturing in graphic detail how two outcasts open fire at a fictional high school in a so-called chiller movie. Remember, please be kind and rewind. Thank you. 